Welcome to the New Life Baptist Podcast. Our mission is to love the Great Commandment, live the Great Commission, and lead one more to Jesus Christ. We thank you for listening, and we hope that you are encouraged today as we dive into God's Word. Let me invite you to take the Word of God. Let's open the Word of God and turn in the Word of God to Acts chapter 10. As you're finding Acts chapter 10, I pray that the Holy Spirit will indeed fill us up and make us new and make us faithful and make us fruitful, and He will move freely here in us and freely in this place. And we're coming to Acts chapter 10, jumping back into our series in the book of Acts. We were there till Christmas, and now we're going to get back in here today and be in Acts till the rest of the spring, and so we're thankful for the time that we get to share and walk together chapter by chapter, passage by passage, and verse by verse through the Word of God here today. And as we move into Acts chapter 10, we're coming out of Acts chapter 9, where the focus has been on Paul. Paul has been called by God. Paul has been changed by God. And Paul has a ministry that God's going to use him to really turn the world upside down. And we transition back from Paul to Peter. Now, Peter, again, was one of the original 12, and he was the one that was really on the inner circle of Christ as he was a disciple, an apostle, a follower of Jesus. Peter has been filled with the Holy Spirit, and Peter has been the primary voice for the gospel. He's preached two different times, and both times that we've seen this public proclamation of him preaching the gospel, 3,000 people got saved, and then 2,000 people got saved. And we've just seen this mighty movement of the ministry of Peter. And so we come back to Peter, and here's what I want you to see. As we, as we follow the power of the Holy Spirit, God's going to do something in our lives, and it's going to look a lot like this. We're often going to see the gospel advance to places that you and I wouldn't go and reach people that you and I would never touch. It's going to be the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's going to often lead us into places that you and I would never generally go to and reach people that we generally would never have any interaction with. And that's exactly what's going to happen here with a man named Cornelius. And if I could give you kind of a target statement of where we're going today, here's what I want you to do. We must live. We must live to invite those that Jesus died to include. We must live to invite into the kingdom, into the good news of Christ. We must live to invite those that Jesus, he died to include. And so for the reading and the honor of God's word, if you'll stand with me today, Acts chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 1. And the word of God says this. It says, Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius. Who was Cornelius? He was a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. But he was not just a Roman officer. He was a devout man, one who feared God with all of his household. And he gave many alms to the Jewish people. And he prayed to God continually. And about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. And fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed or even afraid, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now don't miss the, just the significance of that. If you think about the Old Testament, when they would light the altar of incense, it would kind of arise to God as a sweet aroma, right? The sacrifice would be pleasing to the Lord. And that was something done in the house of worship. And here we have a Gentile. Someone who's not a Jew, someone who's not in the place of worship, and an angel says and comes, hey, your sacrifice, your worship, it's a sweet aroma 
to the nose of a holy God. He's heard, he's seen your worship, he's heard your prayers, and it's come and pleasing him. And first time this has ever happened outside of that holy place. And it says, the holy angel said to him, now dispatch some men, verse 5, to Joppa, and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. This is the word of God, Amen. Amen. You may have a seat today, and may your text stay open before you, if you will, and turn the backside of the worship guide, and we're going to walk together through the Word and plug in some things as we go. And I want you to kind of understand our context here. Peter. Peter is a generational Jew. He is a, a very devoted Jew. And we're going to see for the first time now God not just saving a Gentile, but God going to the place of the Gentiles, the gospel moving beyond Jerusalem, right, Samaria to the ends of the earth. That's where we're going. We are going to the ends of the earth. And what I want you to see is the gospel do two different powerful things as it reaches us. Here's the first thing I want you to plug in. I want you to see this. We are reconciled for a relationship. The gospel, the whole thrust of Christ, the whole thrust of God coming and saving us is you and I, we have been reconciled for a relationship with him. All right, let's go back in. Verse 1, let's go back to our text. It says, now there was a man, and what was his name? Cornelius at Caesarea, and he was a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. He was a devout man, one who feared God with all of his household. He gave many alms to the Jewish people, and he prayed to God continually. And so here's what we know about, about old, old Cornelius right here. First of all, he, he's labeled a centurion. What in the world is a centurion? Well, a centurion is this. Centurions were typically captains in the Roman army, and they were in charge of a hundred men. All right, that would make up the word centurion. And so he would typically be a man who's got a 100-man unit. All right, I'm over these people, but would also be used to describe an officer in the Roman army, a high-ranking officer in the Roman army. And that seems to be the application for Cornelius because he's not just in charge of 100 men. Man, he's with an Italian regiment. He's with a whole other unit, a whole other division. And so we understand that, first of all, Cornelius is a military man. He's a man of arms, a man of order, a man of instruction, a man of dedication and devotion, a man willing to sacrifice. And so we have a military man in the man of Cornelius, but we also have a devout man in the man of Cornelius. It says he was a man who feared God. Not only feared God, but he led his household to know God. He led his household to fear God. He gave not only to the church, but he prayed to God continually. He was a man who was seeking to know God. Now, here's, here's what we know about Cornelius so far. We know this. Cornelius, man, he is a good man. He's a nice man. Cornelius is a man who, who didn't believe in the gods and goddesses of Rome. He didn't believe in any mythology. He wasn't a man just going a line and following Caesar and Caesar being his God. He was a man who was seeking to know the true God of Israel. He was on the outside, but he wanted to be on the inside. He's like, I want to know God. I want to know the true God. I want to know the living God. And I want to lead my household to know the true and living God. But here's what we see about him. Despite all this desire, he was a nice man, but he wasn't yet a new man. Right? He wasn't born again. He wasn't new because why? He hadn't heard about Jesus. He's seeking to know God. It's obvious he's praying, he's worshiping, he's trying everything he can with all the knowledge he has. I'm seeking to know God. I'm seeking to worship God, but he's not yet met him in salvation through the person of Jesus Christ. And so it just tells you here, first of all, it's not enough to be nice if you're not new. Right? No good people go to heaven. Saved people go to heaven. 
Born again, people go to heaven. You can't perform your way. You can't moral your way. You can't modify your behavior way in. You have to be changed by Christ. And so he doesn't have that relationship. But God comes and meets him, right? God sends an angel to him. Finally, God reveals himself through an angel and told him that even though he's not a Jew, God has seen his worship. God has heard his prayers. And God has come to answer him with very specific instructions. He says in verse 5, Dispatch the men to Joppa. Send for a man named Simon, who's also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. Again, I don't miss even the significance of that. You go back to chapter 9, Peter staying with a tanner. What's a tanner? Is a man who makes leather. How do you make leather? Well, you have to dry out after you kill an animal, their skin, right? And so he's a man touching unclean things. That's going to set the stage for where we are and what God's about to reveal. And so what we see, Peter is already crossing some lines of the clean versus unclean discussion. It's going to be uh, just monumental for where we go next. And so he's staying at this house. He's staying at the Tanner's house. He's defiling himself by staying there according to these Jewish customs. And it says this. It says, when the angel who was speaking to him had left verse 7, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he explained everything, what did he do? He sent them on and sent them out to Joppa. To Joppa. So we see this incredible thing where, where God has come to him. I've seen you, Cornelius. I've heard you, Cornelius. Your worship is pleasing to me. And, and God comes and tells him exactly what to do. And I love that God always fully reveals himself so that we can always faithfully respond. He always fully reveals himself so you and I can faithfully respond to his instruction. He doesn't say, hey, I've got a plan for your life. I need you to go figure it out. He says, no, Cornelius, I want you to go here. You're going to find a man. His name is Simon. You can call him Peter. And he's going to be staying at a very specific house in a very specific location. And that's where you're going to find him. And God doesn't generally work in generals. He works in very specifics. Amen? Because what has he done? He has fully revealed himself to us in the power of his word. And he gives us very specific instructions. He tells us who to go to, where to find them, right? The highways and the hedges, the law, seeking and saving those who are far from God. He tells us how to do it by sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, right? So we have very specific instructions. He's fully revealed himself so we can faithfully respond. And I love that when God came and told him to do this to the angel, what did he do? Cornelius, he summoned his men and then he sent them. Immediate obedience. God brought him to a point of obedience, and he was willing to obey. He summoned and he sent. And what I love about this story, if you just kind of take a step back and kind of see the big picture, what I love about this story is that when you have Cornelius and you have Peter, God is working separately in these men. But he's also working simultaneously in this men to both bring them to the same purpose— I think it's incredibly powerful that God over here is preparing this man for this, and God over here is preparing this man for that. And he's going to bring their stories together in a way that's going to crash and intersect and be a, a global changer, right, for the gospel. And I want you to see powerfully when God is working in you, he's often working in someone else to prepare you for that interaction. It's not an accident when you have these coincidences, it's not an accident when you're praying for something and maybe God sends someone to you or maybe God sends you to someone else, but God is often preparing because he's working separately in our lives, but simultaneously at the same time. You ever had someone just kind of give you a word of encouragement at just the right time? You ever someone just say, oh, can I pray for you right now? And you're like, God, would you just give me someone to pray with? 
And this is what God does. He works in our lives in such powerful ways, and we see this happen because, meanwhile, back in Joppa, if we just kind of see where, where Peter's at, Peter's, he's seeking the Lord. It tells he goes on to the rooftop to pray in verse 9. It says, on the next day, all right, on the next day, as they were on their way approaching the city, Peter, he went up on the housetop on the roof and he, at the sixth hour, but high noon, and he went out to pray. And, and as he was doing that, he became hungry, and he was desiring something to eat because it sure is easy to get distracted during prayer time, right? And he's like thinking about food. He's going through lunch. He's going through that. He starts saying, I'm pretty hungry. And while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And God revealed to him, God, he saw the sky. He saw heaven opened up, an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by the four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, and this is the voice of God. He says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything unholy and anything unclean. And again, a voice came to him a second time, and said, so what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. What God has made clean, don't you dare call unclean. And this happened three times, and immediately the object was taken back up into the sky. So Peter praying on the rooftop, seeking God, and he saw heaven open up. A great sheet comes down, and, and it, if you can imagine kind of a, a sail on a ship, right? Just a huge sail on a, on a ship. That would be the sheet that we can imagine in our, in our own mind's eye of how it comes down from heaven. And what he sees on this sheet, on this huge sail, is animals. And not just, you know, kosher animals, but animals that he would say, those things aren't right. Those things aren't clean. Those things aren't okay for me to, to, to look at, let alone for me to eat and interact with God. By no means would I ever do something that would defile me. And, and so when God says, hey, Peter, I want you to get up. I want you to kill it, and I want you to eat it. Peter says, no. Can you imagine anything more foolish than saying no to Almighty God? He says, no, Lord, I, I could never. But he has a reason to object because he's a strict Jew. I would never defile myself, God. I'm a man of, of character. I will not compromise. Right? I stand on these things, that my convictions. And so, Lord, I'm not going to eat pork. And God, I'm not going to eat these certain shellfish. And God, I'm not going to eat these certain things that you've told me not to eat. God, I will not disobey. I will not violate my conscience. I've never eaten anything unclean before. I'm not starting today. But God responds. And in one moment, in one phrase, we see centuries of dietary laws, according to Leviticus chapter 11, centuries of dietary laws and legal requirements were instantly repealed. And you stop and say, hey, is God changing his word? Did God change his mind? And the answer is no, no, no. He didn't change his word. He didn't change his mind. He's fulfilling it. Right? Those things were in place to help Israel see we're to be holy and we're to be separate, and we're to be set aside for the purposes of God. We're to be different as we're in this world, but not of this world. But now God says, I don't have you only in this world, not of this world, but I'm going to have you reach the world, right? So he tells him, I've got something I'm going to do with you, Peter, because it's not about animals, all right? It's not about food. It's not about diet. It's not about any restrictions. This message I'm giving to you, Peter, this vision, it's about you reaching people, all right, it's about people. It's about the gospel advancing. And I love that we see God showing him all these things that were declared unclean and unfit and unworthy because here's the powerful truth. God can take anything ruined and instantly make it right. right? God can take anything ruined and instantly make it 
right? God's telling Peter, hey, even the things defiled, even things unworthy, unfit for my presence, I can make those things new. I can make those things right. That's the power of verse 15. A voice came to him and said, what God has cleansed, what God has made clean, what God declares as right and fit for his service and his worship, I don't want you any longer to consider those things unholy. And so he says, hey, those things may be ruined. Those things may be not right, but I can make those things right I'm God Almighty. I can make what is old new. I can make what is dead alive. I can take what is broken and make it just right. And we see that God is telling Peter, hey, even if it's broken, I can make it brand new. Even if it's contaminated, I can make it clean. There's nothing our God cannot make new. There's nothing our God cannot make right. And I would just ask you, have you ever ruined your life? Ever ruined a part of your life? Has anyone ever ruined any part of your life? Maybe ruined different things in different aspects? And I would just tell you today, there's nothing God can't make right. You are in view of God making new. You are in reach of God making it right. And just because it's been broken doesn't mean it can't be made brand new again in Jesus. And so Peter has his message, and we have this message that God can make all things new. Because here's the difference. Because God has acted now things can be accepted. Right? Because God has acted, those things can be accepted. Because here's the truth. Nothing can make itself new. Nothing can clean itself up. Nothing can make itself right, right? I mean, nothing about those things to be like, hey, you know what? Today, I've decided I'm not unclean, All right? It's 2024. I declare I'm in the clean category today. That's my right. I can call myself whatever I want to call myself. That's, that doesn't work. Nothing can make itself clean that's been unclean by God. And nothing can make itself its right if it's been wrecked by God, right? We see that these categories of clean and unclean cannot be changed because you just decided that's the way it's going to be. Just like a person can't just decide, I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. I'm going to make God pleased with me because I perform better than someone else. And so we see because God has acted, God has made all things accepted. And here's how God has acted in your life. God has seen you broken, ruined, wrecked, lost, without a shepherd, looking for answers, with eternity set in your heart, and God has acted. God has done what? He has sent his one and only son, Jesus. Jesus come. He lived a perfect life without any sin whatsoever, without any wrong thought and one single action against the will and the way and the word of God. And Jesus died for you in your place. He just went to a cross. And he says, I'm going to pay for your sin. I'm going to pay for it in full. Jesus shed his blood. He had his body broken so that you and I could repent of our sin, receive him as our Lord and Savior. And because God has acted in Christ, I can can be accepted. So God's action leads to our acceptance. And without you receiving and believing the action of God, you have no acceptance in God. And so he's the one who says again in verse 14 and 15, he says, what God has made clean, do not call unholy. If you've been changed by Jesus, don't you let Satan once ever tell you you're not worthy of his love. If you've been changed by Jesus, don't let Satan beat you down with guilt Right, you follow the conviction, but you don't let Satan beat you down with guilt and depression and, and reminding of your shame and, and all your sin. You remind Satan of all that God has done for you, that Jesus has forgiven me. It's not shame off me. Jesus says to the cross, it's shame off of me. He's paid for it in full. God has acted, and now you have been accepted. And so we see powerfully 
that we are reconciled for a relationship. But here's the second thing. As we move on, and Cornelius is going to hear some good news. We are redeemed, but only by his resurrection. We are redeemed, but again, only by his resurrection. Peter travels to Caesarea. They say, hey, we're gonna, the men come. Some powerful thing. Men show up at his house. They look for Simon. Simon Peter, they find him. They bring him, and, and Peter's willing to go. On the next day, he, he went with them, and he went from Joppa, and he went to uh, Caesarea. And as he goes to Caesarea, he arrives, and that's why all this narrative here before verse 34 happens is, is Cornelius says, Peter, you won't believe it. I mean, God's been working in my life, and here's what God has done, and that's why you've been brought here, because God told me to, and I'm just doing what God has told me to do. And so, Peter, I believe you have a word for me. I'm, I'm ready for the word. God told me you're going to bring me some good news. I'm ready to hear the good news. And so Cornelius is telling all that Peter, all that God's done in his life, and he, he expects Peter to tell him what God has for him. And so Peter, it says in verse 34, he opens his mouth and begins to share. So verse 34 says, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, because he is Lord of all, you yourselves now, you know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. Peter tells Cornelius three, three powerful things. Right there in 34 to 36, he tells them that one, God, God is partial to no man. In other words, you've probably heard the phrase, God is no respecter of persons. I mean, no one in this room has an advantage to be saved over someone else. God doesn't say, hey, you know what? You're a little better than someone, so-and-so, so I feel like you're a little easier to save. Uh, despite who you may think you are, still took the full sacrifice of Jesus Christ to save you from your sin. All right, and so God is very clear saying, I don't just save Jews. I'm also going to save Gentiles. I don't just save good people because good people don't go to heaven. I save lost people because all people are far from me and need a Savior. And so he's telling him very clearly, hey, God's an equal opportunist because he saves everybody because we're all sinners in need of a Savior. Right? So first of all, God shows no partiality. Second thing is God seeks to save sinners. Praise God for good news. That at the foot of the cross, it is level ground. It doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter your present doesn't matter your future. At the foot of the cross, we are all the same. We need a Savior. We are all broken. We're all lost. We're all separated from God and our sin until we come. That's the second thing that he says, that we're all here together because we all need a Savior. And the good news is that he comes in verse 36, the word that he went, sent is that Jesus is the Christ. He is the, the Lord. Is that God, he, what does he do? He makes peace with people who are far from him. That's good news. And the question is, how is that possible? How does God save people? How does God find us all at the foot of the cross on equal ground? How does he save people far from How does he give us peace? How does he make us right with him? How does he do this? And the, and the simple answer that we're going to see through the gospel message is this, the cross of Christ. The only way that you and I are reconciled, the only way that you and I are forgiven, the only way you and I are ever made right with God is through the cross of Christ and Christ alone. 
Where do we see that? How do we know that? Verse 38, it goes on. It says, you know Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit, with power, and how he went about doing good and healing who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And Peter says, hey, we're witnesses of all the things. We were there. I'm an eyewitness of all things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. But here's the deal. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. But here's good news. God raised him up. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And here's what he's charged us with. He has ordered us to preach to the people and to solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. How is that possible? The cross of Christ. And I want you to understand here, when he shares the gospel, and when he shared the gospel both times before this, any message that does not include the cross and the resurrection, it is not the gospel. All right, understand that. Any message, any preacher that preaches a message, if there's anyone communicating a message and they don't mention the cross of Christ, his death burial and resurrection, they have not shared the whole story. They've not shared the actual gospel. It may be good news. It may be good seed, but it's not the gospel. And so, hey, it's super easy. And this may be a great place for us to start. Jesus loves you. God loves you. Man, God bless you. Can I just can I share my story with you? If we do all these things, and those are good things to do, but if we don't share the cross... And if we don't share the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we have not shared the gospel. It is empty evangelism, right? We must share the whole story. We must share the whole good news because it must be good news. It must be something of anything because the good news is is for everyone. That's the best part about this whole thing. It's for everyone. Again, it says of him in verse 43, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. And I love that that word says everyone because here's what I know to be true. You don't have to be the right person to be saved. There are no right kind of people to be saved. God desires that all be saved and none should perish and that everyone should inherit eternal life. That is God's desire. That is God's will, and that's God's way, and that's God's word, is that we would all come and submit and surrender our lives to his lordship, right? That is what God would want for your life, and it's for everyone. It's for the addicted. It's for the broken families. It's for the people with past and pain and problems that we cannot describe. It's for the sexually immoral. It's for the liars. It's for the people in prison. It's for the uneducated, it's the people far from him, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what your story is, you can call on his name. Your request will not be refused. Because not only say this in verse 43, but here's what it also says in Romans 10, 13. For everyone, for everyone and whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, watch this, will be saved. That's a promise. If you are here and you have a conviction to give your life to Jesus, if you call upon his name, you will be saved. But if you don't, if you don't call upon Jesus to be your Savior, there's only one position left for him to be. And what is that? Your judge. Let's go back to our text. Look in verse 42. And he ordered us, Jesus, the apostles, he ordered us to do what? To preach to the people and to solemnly testify that this is the one who's been appointed by God as what? What? 
judge of the living and the dead. That's not a very popular gospel, is it? You don't hear that very much. Have you heard of the judge? Let me tell you about the judge, right? We don't talk about the judgment very much, but it says Jesus, he is the judge of the living and the dead. So Jesus is not just the judge at the end, but he's also the judge right now. And you're like, man, that's bad news. That's not good news. That doesn't sound like the gospel at all. And it's really bad news. Absolutely. If he's not your savior, it's horrible news that you stand in judgment. But here's some good news. It's good news when the judge becomes your friend, when he becomes your defense attorney. See, he who knew no sin became sin, so that in him and through him we might receive and become the righteousness of God, right? Through Christ alone, the judge can be your friend. I shared the story with you last year, but I want to share it with you again because it couldn't be more appropriate for this text. There's a story of a young man speeding in a small Texas town. He's driving one of those small country roads, a little two-lane you know, just one stripe down the middle, not a double stripe at all. So he's there, and he's going pretty quick, and he's, he's going 75 miles per hour in a 55-mile-per-hour zone. State trooper, sitting on the side of the road, sees him coming, he's got the radar on, and he pulls him over. Blue lights behind him, he writes him a ticket, and the ticket is for $500. I mean, he's just a kid, he didn't have $500, so the young man goes to the court. And when he goes to the court, stands before the judge, the judge says, hey, listen, young man, you were found guilty and you are declared guilty right now of going 75 and a 55. The fine for you right now is $500. The young man's like, hey, listen, judge, I'm guilty. I admit it. I've done wrong. But you know what? I don't have $500. Is there any way that you can forgive me of this ticket? And the judge says, son, listen, if you don't have $500, I feel sorry for you. But if you don't have that right now, we're going to have to lock you up for the weekend. And the young man says, judge, listen, I can't go to jail. Uh, please don't send me there. Please, would you forgive me? I don't have $500, but I don't want to go to jail. Please, would you please just forgive me of this guilt and forgive me of this, of this ticket? And the, and the judge says, son, listen, there's nothing I can do. My hands are tied by the state of Texas. I, I cannot let you go. There's nothing I can do from here. The young man just began to cry, realizing, man, what a mess he's made of his life. And the judge, filled with, with mercy and filled with grace and filled with love for the young man and kindness, he stands up. He takes off his robe, puts on his coat, and he walks down to the, where the young man's standing and opens up his wallet. And as he does that, he pulls out $500, places it on the table, looks at the young man, gives him a little pat on the shoulder, walks back up, takes off his jacket, puts back on his robe, and sits down at the bench. And what he does is, young man, it looks like your defense attorney showed up and paid your fine. You are now free to go. Your, your, your guilt has been paid for and paid for in full. I no longer declare you guilty. See, what the judge couldn't do is from that seat, couldn't do anything to save him down there. But because he went and took his place, because he went from judge to defense attorney, he could change the status just like that. And here's the best news about it all. Jesus Christ has come down as our judge. He has come, stripped himself of his glory, it says, and put on flesh. And as he put on his flesh and became a man, he lived a perfect life. He died on a cross that you and I deserve to die on, and he died in our place. And what he declares is, as our defense attorney, as our justifier, he says, I have made you now right with God. And through me and me alone, because I paid for it, I paid for it in full, you can be forgiven. You can be declared not guilty. And I'll drop all the charges because I've done this for you. See, understand so powerfully, our judgment can turn to joy if we simply come to Jesus. Our judgment can become joy 
It can be made into joy if you and I will simply come to Jesus. How? Through the cross of Christ. Have you been changed by the cross? Have you been changed by Christ? That's the invitation for all of us here today. And as the worship team comes to lead us in response to the good news, here's what I want to challenge you to take home. Here's our take home today. We must faithfully distribute what God has fully declared. We must faithfully distribute what God fully declares. See, God has declared that he makes all things new. God has declared that he came to seek and save the lost. God has declared on the cross, it is finished. And that you and I, through what he's done for us, through the completion of his sacrifice, you and I can be forgiven. You and I can be justified. You and I can be adopted as daughters and sons of the Most High King. But we must come through the cross of Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we see the love and the judgment of God come so perfectly together. Because if God was only love, then there would be no cross for the Christ. But if God was only just, then there would be no Christ for the cross. But because he's both, there's a cross and there's a Christ who comes and pays for it in our place. We thank you for listening. Be sure to click the subscribe button on this podcast so you don't miss out on any and all of our future content. We pray you were encouraged by the word of God today. If you feel that the Lord is leading you to make a decision or have questions, you can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, or at our website, at newlifebaptist.faith.